In this second episode, we explore another of the oldest themes across all of the arts, romantic obsession. It's called Infatuation, Thy Name is Love. This is Rendition, a modern retelling of timeless stories. Each week, you'll hear a medley of folk tales, ancient parables, and classic short fiction. We'll take this tour through folklore, literature, and the arts to reveal the fundamental themes that are still being reused today. Because the world has changed, but the human story remains the same. My friend Cassandra is very pretty and has a friendly face. So for this reason, out of curiosity, I asked her if guys come at her with pickup lines when she goes out. This is us on the phone talking about that. Any like really corny ones that, that you've heard? Like, that oh, yeah. That has hit my, you with? my favorite one that I can't forget is this guy was walking on the street. And this guy comes up to me out of nowhere. This, you know, the creeper pickup lines always come out of nowhere. You even you have no warning of them coming towards you. And he just comes up to my ear and says, um, he says, Angel, how's Jesus? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like implying, you know, I'm an angel from heaven and I know Jesus like we're pals like that. Uh... That, that one I was like, oh, okay, I got to keep walking. Pickup lines have been a topic that has always fascinated me. The few times I've tried them, I've failed miserably. But they are still interesting to me because although it seems like they're corny and never work, they are still around. You figured we would have moved on to something better by now. But if guys keep using them, then that must mean that they work every now and then. No? Well, I think pickup lines are harmless, and they're a great example of the length someone will go to just to get the attention of someone else that they're attracted to. If you keep going down that road, though, things get creepy and then sinister. I mean, listen to this song that we all know by the police. The melody sounds calm and endearing, but the song is about straight up stalking a woman that he's obsessed with. And if you think men are the only ones who are guilty of obsession, I present to you this song by Blondie. She then proceeds to talk about finding the guy with lyrics like, I will drive past your house, and if the lights are all down, I'll see who's around. Yikes. So this is what I want to continue exploring in this episode today. The concept of things we do when we're infatuated. 
because infatuation is often confused for love, but it's something different from love, especially if the other person doesn't reciprocate those feelings. So I have two short stories for you today, a really old one from centuries ago and a newer one from around the 1940s. This first story gets traced back to the Muslim world, and although it's cheeky and funny at times, it provides us with a warning about the dangers of following an obsession through to its conclusion. I have to give thanks to authors that have helped continue the legacy of this tale, specifically Jane Yolen with her book Favorite Folk Tales from Around the World, and also Alan Ramsey, both of whom I used as sources to create my own version. The story is called What Happened to Haji. Haji was a businessman in the commercial area of Istanbul. He was a Muslim and married, but even so, he was not invulnerable to the charms of women. It happened one day that a charming young lady came to his shop to purchase some spices. After she left, Haji, as much as he tried, could not stop thinking about her. Furthermore, he was intrigued by a tiny black bag containing 12 grains of wheat that his lady visitor had left behind. He stayed in the shop until late that night, hoping that either the young lady or one of her servants would come back for her stuff. This way, he'd have a chance to see her again or find out where she lived. But no, his prayer wasn't answered, so he went home. At home that night, he plunged into deep thought, unresponsive to his wife's conversation. Haji remained distant day after day, until finally he relented to his wife's questions and told her all about that young lady from the shop. Oh husband, replied his wife, and do you not understand what that black bag containing the 12 grains of wheat means? I don't. Do you? replied Haji. Why, my husband, it is plain, plain as if it had been told. She lives in the wheat market at house number 12 with a black door. Much excited, Haji rushed off and found that there was indeed a number 12 in the wheat market with a black door, so he quickly knocked. The door opened and who did he encounter but the object of his infatuation. Instead of speaking to him, however, she threw a basin of water out into the street and then shut the door. Haji did not know what to think of this. He lingered about the doorway for a bit, but then returned home. He greeted his wife more pleasantly than he had done for many days and told her of his adventure. Why, said his wife, don't you understand what the basin of water thrown out on the door means? Sure don't, said Haji. Poor thing, she said, with a slight shake of the head. It means that at the back of the house, there is a running stream, and that you must go to her that way. Haji once again rushed off and found that his wife was right. 
There was a running stream at the back of the house, so he knocked at the back door. The young lady, however, instead of opening it, came to the window, showed a mirror, reversed it, and then disappeared. Haji lingered at the back of the house for a long time, but seeing no further sign of life, he returned to his own home, dejected and destroyed. On his entering the doorway, his wife greeted him with, Well, was it not as I told you? Yes, said Haji. You are truly a wonderful woman. But I do not know why she came to the window and showed me a mirror, both front and back, instead of just opening the door. Oh, said his wife, that is very simple. She means that you must go back when the face of the moon has reversed itself, about 10 o'clock. The hour arrived. Haji hurried off, and so did his wife, one to see the woman he's pining for, and the other to inform the police. While Haji and his charmer were talking in the garden, the police showed up. Remember, this is a long time ago, in a strict Muslim town where such behavior is prohibited. So the police showed up, grabbed them, and carried them both off to prison. All this while Haji's wife, having accomplished her mission, returned home. The next morning, the wife baked a large quantity of pastries and, taking them to the prison, begged entrance of the guards and permission to distribute those cakes to the prisoners as an act of charity on behalf of Allah. This being a request which could not be denied, she was allowed to enter. Finding the cell in which the lady who had attracted her husband was confined, she offered to save her the disgrace of the exposure, provided she would consent never again to cast loving eyes upon Haji. Those conditions were gratefully accepted, and Haji's wife changed places with the prisoner. When they were brought before the judge, Haji was shocked to see his wife. But... Being a wise man, he held his peace and let her do the talking, which of course she did most vigorously. Vehemently, she protested against the insult inflicted on both her and her husband. What right had the police to bring them to prison because they chose to converse in a garden, seeing that they were lawfully wedded people? To witness that they were man and wife, she called upon the watchman and the priest of the district and several of her neighbors. Poor Haji was dumbfounded when, accompanied by his wife, he was allowed to walk out of the prison where he had expected to stay at least a year or two. Truly, you are a wonderful woman, was all he was able to say. That story you just heard maintains all its details, no matter who the source is. Yeah, a few words change here and there, but aside from that, 
It seems to have acquired a consistent shape and structure early on when it was first being spread. Now, this next story is newer, roughly around the 1940s or 50s, but it comes from a long legacy of stories about this topic. It has also created its own legacy to be followed, as I've noticed that I see common threads uh, between this story and some movies from the 90s that were inspired by it. The story is by John Collier, another legend in the short story field. Although I will say I updated a few words here and there to make it more clearer to a modern audience. This tale is called The Chaser. Alan Austin, as nervous as a kitten, went up some dark and creaky stairs in the neighborhood of Pell Street and wandered around the hallway for a long time before he finally found the name he wanted written obscurely on one of the doors. He pushed open this door, as he had been told to do, and found himself in a tiny room, which contained no furniture but a plain kitchen table, a rocking chair, and a regular wooden chair. On one of the dirty pale yellow walls were a couple of shelves containing altogether maybe a dozen bottles and jars. An old man sat in the rocking chair, reading a newspaper. Alan, without a word, handed him the card he had been given. Sit down, Mr. Austin, said the old man very politely. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Is it true, asked Alan, that you have a certain mixture that has, um, quite extraordinary effects? My dear sir, replied the old man, my stock and trade is not very large. I don't deal in laxatives and teething mixtures, but such as it is, it is varied. I think nothing I sell has effects which could be precisely described as ordinary. Here, for example, said the old man, reaching for a bottle from the shelf, here is a liquid as colorless as water, almost tasteless, quite undetectable in coffee, wine, or any other beverage. It is also quite undetectable to any known method of autopsy. Do you mean it is a poison? cried Alan, horrified. Call it a glove cleaner if you like, said the old man indifferently. Maybe it will clean gloves. I have never tried. One might call it a life cleaner. Lives need cleaning sometimes. I want nothing of that sort, said Alan. All for the better, I guess, said the old man. Do you even know the price of this? For one teaspoonful, which is sufficient to do the job, I ask $5,000. Never less. Not a penny less. I hope all your mixtures are not as expensive, said Alan. Oh dear, no, said the old man. It would be no good charging that sort of price for a love potion, for example. Young people who need a love potion very seldom have $5,000. Otherwise, they would not need a love potion. Whew. I'm glad to hear that, said Alan. 
I look at it like this, said the old man. Please a customer with one article, and he will come back when he needs another, even if it is more costly. He will save up for it if necessary. So, said Alan, you really do sell love potions then? If I did not sell love potions, said the old man, reaching for another bottle, then I wouldn't have mentioned it. And these potions, said Alan, they are not just, uh, just... Oh, no, no, said the old man. Their effects are permanent and extend far beyond the mere casual impulse. But they include it, too. Oh, yes, yes, they include it. Bountifully, insistently, everlastingly. Oh, my, said Alan attempting a look of scientific detachment. How very interesting. But consider the spiritual side, said the old man. I do, indeed, said Alan. For indifference, said the old man, the potions substitute devotion. For scorn, adoration. Give one tiny measure of this to the young lady. Its flavor is undetectable in orange juice in soup or cocktails, and however much of a socialite she is, she will change altogether. She will want nothing but solitude and you. I can hardly believe it, said Alan. She's so fond of parties. She will not like them anymore, said the old man. She will be afraid of the pretty girls you may meet. She'll actually be jealous? cried Alan in a rapture. Of me? Yes, she'll want to be everything to you. She is already, only she doesn't care about it. She will when she has taken this. She will care intensely. You will be her sole interest in life. Wonderful, cried Alan. She will want to know all you do, said the old man. All that has happened to you during the day, every word of it. She'll want to know what you're thinking about, why you smile suddenly, why you're looking sad. That is love, cried Alan. Yes, said the old man. How carefully she will look after you. She will never allow you to be tired, to sit in a draft, to neglect your food. If you're an hour late, she will be terrified. She'll think you're killed or that some other woman has seduced you away. I can hardly imagine Diana like that, cried Alan, overwhelmed with joy. You will not have to use your imagination, said the old man. And, by the way, since there are always seductive women about town, if by any chance you should, later on, slip a little, you need not worry. She'll forgive you in the end. She'll be terribly hurt, of course, but she'll forgive you in the end. That won't happen, said Alan fervently. Of course not, said the old man. But if it did, you have no need to worry. She would never divorce you. Oh, no. And of course, she will never give you the least, the very least, grounds to be distrustful of her. And how much, said Alan, is this wonderful mixture. It is not as dear, said the old man, as the glove cleaner, or life cleaner, as I sometimes call it. 
No. That is $5,000. Never a penny less. One has to be older than you are to indulge in that sort of thing. One has to save up for it. But how about the love potion? said Alan. Oh, that, said the old man, opening the drawer in the kitchen table and taking out a tiny, rather dirty-looking jar. That is just a dollar. I can't tell you how grateful I am, said Alan, watching him fill it. I like to oblige, said the old man. Then customers come back later in life, when they are better off and want more expensive things. Here you are. You'll find it very effective. Thank you again, said Alan. Goodbye. Till next time, said the man. Infatuation, as you can see, is pretty much an unwinnable situation. If this obsession is not kept at bay, it eventually turns inward and contributes to self-destruction by the host himself. And if this second story shines at least a little bit of truth despite its far-fetched concept, then I think it's that the obsessed party isn't necessarily headed for a happy ending even if the feelings do eventually get reciprocated. That might actually be the worst thing that could happen to them. As the self-help proverb goes, humans with a goal tend to prepare themselves to encounter every possible scenario, except the scenario of success. Think about that next time you attempt a pickup line. Guys and gals, thank you so much for tuning in to this second episode of Rendition. I started this podcast because I've been fascinated with folktales for a while now, and this concept seemed like something just fun to create. And I have been having a lot of fun putting this together. It didn't really fit with the concept of my other podcast called Project Book, so that's why I decided to just make a whole brand new show so this concept can live here and then I can still do my thing on the other podcasts as well. Now, I will say that reviews, especially for a new podcasts, go a long way towards getting us on the new and noteworthy chart on the Apple podcast. So if you have 30 seconds to spare a minute, um, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a short review, just one or two sentences. That'd be way more than enough. Uh, just put in what you like about the show, and if there are any folk tales you think that I should cover. Just anything, any thoughts, but one or two sentences is way more than enough. So um, if you do, if you would like to find out more about the show and upcoming episodes and how to keep in touch, then please just go visit our website. It's uh, at renditionpod.com. Again, that's renditionpod.com. It's spelled R-E-N-D-I-T-I-O-N-P-O-D.com. I'm Alex Cespedes. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.